Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us, and help us to see what you want us to see through this evening, and, and teach us your word, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 17, we're going to be starting on verse 19. He's talked about the captivity of Judah was going to face, that men trust in, in, in themselves and not God, that God blesses the righteous, uh, that only God can bring salvation. So he's had a lot in this chapter, and we've been going through it very slowly. So chapter 17, verse 19. Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, whereby the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Hear you the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that enter in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourself, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do you any work, but hallow you the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they obeyed not, neither inclined their ear, but made their necks stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. So I'm going to stop there because here Jeremiah is told, go to Jerusalem, stand in the gates and pro pro proclaim this. The first one he tells them is the gate that the kings use. This is the gate of David, and it's the one the kings went in and out of. And he says, go and declare. So what is, this, what is this that he's declaring for them is a very simple statement. Hear the word of the Lord, all, you, all of Judah and all you inhabitants of Jerusalem that enter into these gates. So it says, everybody who's coming in, listen to what God says. Now I wish we had a place in America where we could go someplace and just say, all of you people, listen to what God says. All right, because we are falling away from God so fast in this country and and the word of God is being restricted and not listened to, and we're not following God. And Jeremiah was told, go to Jerusalem. Now, we also want to consider, when is, Jer when is Jeremiah preaching? He is preaching at the very end of the, of the nation before it goes into captivity into Babylon. And things are bad. They're worshiping idols. They're not paying attention to God. There's fornication and, and adultery. Um, and right now, the one that God is talking about is you're not honoring the Sabbath day to the people. This is what he's telling uh, Jeremiah. Goes. So Twain 1 says, Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourself and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it into the gates of Jerusalem. And so he is not even telling them to do nothing. He's just saying, Do not bring your burdens. Do not bring your stuff into Jerusalem because once they brought it into Jerusalem what did they do they set it up in the market and sold it so it wasn't just the bearing of the burden which was against the against the law of Moses but it was to take and then when they got in the city they would set up the market and start selling and if you remember in Ezra's day when they came back from the from uh, captivity Ezra and Nehemiah looked around and people, and it wasn't the Jews bringing the stuff in to set up market. It was their neighbors coming into Jerusalem, setting up markets and selling on the Sabbath day. But the problem that Ezra and Nehemiah had was that people were buying from them. 
So they basically came in and said, you guys know what? Don't come next Sabbath because we're locking the gates. We're not even opening the gates. And here they come to the gates and they're not open. And they sat out there waiting for them to be open. And they said, we're not opening the gates to the city. Jeremiah's day, they're not even willing to go that far. People are bringing in all the stuff and building up these, these things. And what does God say? Take heed to yourself. Consider, guard yourself. And now we, in our day, are not bound by all the rules and laws that God has had, but God will also teach us what we are supposed to do. And we've, we've talked about this many times. I do not do good things to please God, but I, because he's changing who I am and making me more like him, I will be obedient to his laws over time, not because I have to or I must, but because I want to honor my father. And this is something that's very important. God is saying, take heed, guard yourself. What is it that you're doing? Why are you bringing your stuff in and selling it on the Sabbath? When Moses first put it, gave the law, you remember the guy went out the first Sabbath after the law was given out, picked up sticks, and they stoned him. They, he was put to death for picking up sticks to start a fire. And that's how serious God was with this. He says, this is serious. Now, I am not saying this, you know, for us all of a sudden to say, you know, we have to go commit the Sabbath and everything. But it is very true that we need to find a day of rest. All right. Uh, psychologists are telling us the same thing. If we continue to work without resting, we actually burn out and we get less and less done for what we get done. And I've noticed that over time when I would work long periods of time without taking rest. There comes a point in time when I feel like I'm working full, full bore still, but I'm looking at what gets accomplished and going, something's wrong. What's wrong is I've run out of margin. I've run out of energy and reserves. And this is the purpose of the Sabbath day. The, even in the Jewish people, the hardest working people on the Sabbath were the priests and the Levites who were burning offerings and doing all these things. And they did not have Saturday as their Sabbath. They had to rest some other time in the week because they were very busy on the Sabbath day. Pastors have always been very busy on the day that most people are supposed to rest. We preach, we teach, we visit, uh, we're ministering to people. So we need to take another day off. And for me, it's hard because I have two jobs, so it's even harder to find time to rest. Orthodox Jews definitely. Yeah, yeah. Most Weird. most Reformed Jews do. The the liberal Jews don't really pay much attention to it. The Orthodox Jews, oh, you you go into there. It's it's funny because I had a friend who was in an Orthodox Jew family, and I visited him on Friday, and I had to leave by around sunset because it was getting ready to go. But they ran around their house, opening all the cabinets, all the drawers, all the everything they need. They got their crock pots cooking so they wouldn't have to turn them on. I remember thinking, you know, it tells you what kind of warped sense of humor. I should go around closing all their doors, right? All the doors right at sunset. <laughs> I don't think I would have ever been invited back to my friend's house if I did that, but that was my warped sense of, sense of humor at that time. I think I'll just go close all the doors behind them. Ever since somebody was stoned for gathering sticks, they have been money. If you go to Israel today on Saturday, there are there are Sabbath elevators that stop on every floor as they go up and every floor as they go down. 
They, they still pretty much try to obey the Sabbath. They're not completely locked down. They don't make the, they don't make the Arabs and everybody not, not open their stores, but the Jewish owners will not open up on Saturday. All right. Uh, so they're still, and God said very clearly that the Sabbath was a sign unto the Jews of their relationship to God. It was a sign to everybody, the Gentiles, that they were God's people. And there was a time when Jews were looked at as being very lazy people. people and that during the days when people worked seven days a week and the Jews took a day off every week, they, people would go to, you guys are lazy. You have to take a vacation every one day, every week. You guys are lazy, lazy, lazy. Now we got places that are basically getting us down to a four-day week you know, uh, you know, as we go on. And so the sign of the Jewish people to God was that they took a day off. And it's good for us. I mean, it, it's good mentally. It's good psychologically. It's good physically to take a day off. And that doesn't mean, you know, I, I had this debate with the pastor one time. It doesn't mean that you stop doing the work of the church and go home and do, do all your yard work on that day. He goes, but, it's, but, it, but that's fun. I go, you're still working. <laughs> you're still going beyond what God says. If you really want to take your day of rest, you need a day of rest. And I don't know how many people remember. It wasn't so long ago in America, especially in the South, where we had nothing open on a Sunday. Uh, I don't know about the rest of the world, but I know on Sundays on the, in the South, you had hospitals and fire, fire and uh, police. And that was about the only thing, including your 7-Elevens and your convenience stores. At Saturday at midnight, they locked their doors and they didn't open them again until Monday morning at midnight or Sunday morning at midnight, night at midnight, wherever midnight, whether midnight, whether Sunday or Monday. <laughs> and they would shut down completely. Nothing was open. And it was a wonderful time in one sense because it was a day that they forced you to rest. Now, I don't know what it was like in the rest of the country because by the time I get left there, they'd already gotten rid of most of their blue laws even in the South. But it was a time when you were to rest. And this is what Jeremiah is telling the people. What is wrong with you? Why aren't you committing to God's day of rest? So by the time Jeremiah is preaching, they were not following the Sabbath. And this is the problem with the Jews. They've come and gone, you know, depending on how close they were to God. And for a lot of times, they didn't worship him at all. And then there were times when they were worshiping him to the extreme. <laughs> by the time Jesus is born, they're worshiping him. You know, nothing happens on a Sabbath in Israel. You know, it was shut down completely. And... You know, they had hundreds of laws on what you could and couldn't do on a Sabbath day. You know, and it's kind of interesting to read their, read their, read their books about what you can do. Uh, they could not spit on a Sabbath day because the spit might, might create a furrow in the, in, the, in the ground and they would be plowing. You know, that is how bad they were. You know, remember when Jesus' disciples grabbed the ear of corn, the, 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 the grain, and started rubbing it in their hands to get rid of the, rid of the thing so they could eat it? They, the Pharisees and scribes said they were working on the Sabbath. They were harvesting on the Sabbath. Uh, that's how strict they were getting. And that's how strict they are on the Orthodox side even today. And so this is a serious issue for them. 
uh, for those who that are very orthodox, it, it is a serious issue. And it was a serious issue for God. He said, I told you to rest, why aren't you resting? And I think for each one of us, we do need a period where we just rest and just concentrate on God and, and the whole purpose of keep the Sabbath holy and hallow the day. What does that mean? To make it holy. How do we make it holy? We concentrate on God during that time. That doesn't mean we sit down and watch football games and movies and, and do that, but we say, God, I'm going to spend time with you one day a week. And this is the purpose of the Sabbath. I mean, sometimes people give this whole thing on Sabbath and it just means, okay, well, I'm not going to go to work. But I'm not going to fall, I'm not going to look at God either. And the whole thing about the Sabbath was it was a focus on God. And this is why Jesus came along and he says, we're not just doing a one day a week worship, we're worshiping God all the time. And this is very important for us as Christians. We should be worshiping God every day. You know, and I love to, you know, you all know, I love to sing. And, you know, I love to cross the prison and I just kind of sing a song. You know, I'm not singing at the full top of my voice, but I'm, I'm usually singing as I cross the yard and people are listening to me. What are you singing? And I'll tell them. <laughs> I have no problem telling them because they just opened the door for me to, to do it. And, you know, but are we enjoying God all the time? And there is a point where we should be just resting and f- focusing on God. And unfortunately, even in, especially here in America, when people make a big deal out of the Sabbath, they're not usually focusing on God. They're just saying, I'm not going to go to work. I'm not going to sell. But you'll find them watching movies, watching football, baseball, basketball, uh, whatever it might be, but not focusing on God, which is what the Sabbath was all about. So here he's saying, uh, bear no burden nor bring it in by the gates, he goes, says, and don't carry it out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do work, but hallow, keep the day sacred. All right? You the Sabbath as I commanded your fathers. This is God saying, keep it hallowed. Focus on God. What is the specialty of that day is to focus on what God wants you to be thinking. And this is something that is very important, even for us. How much time do we give to God is something I ask us a lot. You know, uh, God wants a tithe of our money, but I personally believe that he, he wants all of our time, but he wants us to really focus on him at least 10% of our time. That's two and a half hours a day, 16.8 hours a week. You know, do we spend that much time with God, focused on God directly? The average person, the answer is no. You know, and so the question for us always is, are we giving God our time, our energy, our money, at least to the minimum of 10%? And so this is something very important for us. Jeremiah is saying, keep this day hallowed. Keep it sacred. And at this point in time, they weren't. You know, of course, they're not even worshiping God at this point in time. They're worshiping every idol. And we read the other, another scripture that said they had idols on every street corner of Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? This Jerusalem, God's city. We read this in Chronicles that every corner had an idol on it. And can you picture that? You're walking down the street and there's an idol and an altar sitting at every single corner of the city. 
that is mind-boggling to me. And it just stood out when we were reading a study in Second Chronicles, you know, how evil had they become? Now, the question is, how evil is our nation becoming? How evil are many Christians in our thought processes? You know, how, how much of our own thoughts have been captured by the enemy? This is why Paul told us in Corinthians to take every imagination captive. We need to really get hold of the way we think. And about the only way we can really take and get hold of how we think is to spend more time in his word, more time praising him, honoring him, and less time watching television, reading books, uh, you know, and all the stuff that we do that aren't focused on him. Now, am I saying we can't do any of that? No, we need to be, you know, we need to take rest every once in a while. But you know what? My favorite thing really is and has been for many, many decades now to read God's word and to study. All right. Now, God is slowly taking away just about everything else from me. I used to be a football nut. I would watch, you know, 9, 10, 12 hours of football on, on the weekends. Then dawned on me, I'm wasting an awful lot of time that I should be spending time where, you know, focused on God. Now, is there anything wrong with a football game? Not necessarily. But when I was doing that much of it, that's a lot of time taken away from God. You know, maybe it's a hobby somebody has. I've seen people that are so focused on their hobbies that all their energy, all their time is focused on their hobby, whatever that hobby might be, woodworking, uh, sewing, cooking, uh, gardening, whatever it might be. You can focus all your time on that hobby and take it away from God. And we need to be very careful that God has a significant part of our, t- our day. And I understand when you're working, you work eight hours a day. We were supposed to sleep eight hours a day. That only gives us eight hours every day to do anything for God. And if we're tithing it, he wants two and a half of that eight. All right. Uh, so we need to be keeping on focus. And part of the problem we have in our world with electric lights and everything is we tend to not sleep enough overall because we're busy working into the middle of the night. All right. I'm a night owl. I love being up at night. Not so much now that I have to be up at five o'clock in the morning, but back, if I didn't have to be at work at five o'clock in the morning, I'd go back to going to bed at 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the morning and getting up at six or seven o'clock. Because I like, I'm a night owl. I, I thrive on that. When I was working as an independent contractor, I would start work at nine, work till two or three o'clock in the morning and then go to bed for three, four or five hours and start my day all over again. It was what I loved to do. I don't know what you early birds, how you early birds live. <laughs> it's not, not for me. It's, it's tough for me to, to get in there. Uh, but God is saying, hallow this day. Make it sacred. Now, one thing about being obedient to God is something that we need to understand is God is not saying does not want us, well, God, I'm just going to obey your, your, day, your rules, and I'm going to be angry and upset about having to obey them. If you're going to get that way, don't worry about it because you're still not keeping the day. You know, you're still not keeping the day. If you're angry and upset about taking a day off, just work because you're already, you're not resting anyway. You know, because you're angry and upset. You're working yourself up. And this is something that we have liberty. This is what Paul told us in in the New Testament. In Christ, we have liberty. What does liberty mean? We have the freedom to do 
whatever God tells us that we can do. Now, we've said this, and many people have even had this conversation. Whenever somebody says, can I do such and such? My answer is real simple. For you, no. Why? Because you're already doubting that you have liberty to do it. Otherwise, you would not be asking, can I do it? So you already have a doubt that it is something that you have liberty to do. Because if you had liberty, you wouldn't be worrying about, can I do it or can I not do it? You would just be doing it. But as soon as God comes in and says, you cannot, I'm wanting you not to do this, then for you it's wrong. I could not sit down again and watch nine hours of football on a Sunday because God has told me I can't do that. Can I sit down and watch one game? Probably, but I'd still feel bad about that because I'd be wasting three hours of time that I could be doing something else. Now, I kind of like the NFL network that has those games that are played in 30 minutes. It's the whole game. They cut out all the commercials and the dead time. Those are fun. I could, I could picture spending 30 minutes watching a foot, football game and seeing the whole game. Uh, but I'm not spending money on the NFL network. <laughs> but my stepfather was watching a game, and I'm looking, what, what is this game? And I realized it was a past game that they had cut out all the empty space. And I'm going, oh, this is, this is a fun way to watch the game. It's full of action, <laughs> all right? And it didn't take, it didn't take three hours. <laughs> so he's saying here, don't carry this, hallow the day as I have commanded your fathers. We need to understand when God gives us a command, he expects us to obey it. Now, I've said, you know, for many people, there are things that I cannot do that God has said is wrong for me to do that I can't look in the Bible and say this, 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 and this says not to do it, but I know that God told me I can't do it. Do I expect other people to be doing the same things that I'm doing? No, because God didn't tell them to not do it. Now, the other side of the coin is there are some things that you all may not be able to do that I can do with no problem and not, and not have any problem with. I can't judge you for what you can do, and you're not to judge me for what, what I can, can or can't do. You know, we're to just let each other stand and fall before God. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't certain rules that he tells us we need to obey. You know, and I do believe, even though we need, don't have a Sabbath day to keep, we do need to find a day of rest. And like I said, pastors oftentimes have used Monday as their day of rest. They work real hard on Sunday, and they just would usually be off on Monday. Sometimes they took a Friday off. But we found a day that we could rest. And when in three to four years, when my debts are all paid off, I will plan on taking Mondays off, and I'm just going to rest and praise God and enjoy that day off. I'm looking forward to that. So, but until then, I have three half days <laughs> where I block off these evenings and say, these are my days that I don't do things. And that's as close to a day of rest as I get. And so uh, here we are in saying, it says, verse 23, but they obeyed not, neither inclined their ear, but made their necks stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. You know, this is kind of an interesting, they obeyed not, they did not listen. They did not, and this word obey in the Hebrew oftentimes in this case is to hear and obey. All right, it wasn't just to hear. How many times have we heard something and we have no intention of obeying? Usually our kids were like that, if they even heard. <laughs> But we would say something, and they had no intention of obeying us, and maybe even be able to repeat what we said. And God is saying, 
they obeyed not. They did not have an intention to obey. Neither inclined their ear, but made their neck stiff. This was the problem the Jewish people had more often than not. They knew what God said to do. And they made their neck stiff. They were proud. They were arrogant. We are not going to bow to even God. I've had somebody actually tell me when I was witnessing to them, you know, right here in chloride going, I will never bow my knee to God. And I'm going, well, tell you what, you may say that, but there will come a day that you will bow before God. It will be at the white throne judgment, if not before. I go, you might want to get in practice before then. <laughs> because otherwise you are going to bow. Well, I'm never going to do that. Well, Satan himself is going to bow before God. So, but human nature does not want to bow the heart. Well, why would they say it in the first place is because, it, because, because they're extremely proud. I am the center of the world and I'm not going to bow my, my desire. They're the ones that do not make good employees. They do not make good family members. They do not, well, they don't make good anything because they're the center of the universe. And they are not, you are going to bow to them and they are not going to, they're the ones that when the police pull them over are in, the, in their face. They're the one that you give any kind of correction, they're, they're smart mouthed and, and have an attitude. Most of them won't quite go so bad to say, I will never bow to God. But this person has said, I will never bow to God. Well, you eventually will. And I'm hoping that some, the spirit will soften his heart and he'll bow before he dies and has to face God. All right. But how do they end up bowing their heart to, in that? Is the Holy Spirit has to soften their heart. And basically, if you've ever tried to break up hard ground, what do you have to do with it? You hit it with jackhammers, you hit it with shovels and picks and whatever it takes. And God will look at that person who's got such a hard heart and a stiff neck. He says, here we go. We're going to start using the sledgehammer on your, on your heart. We're going, to, we're going to try to break it up. And they'll go through pure hell as God is trying to break up their heart. And some of us are stubborn enough that we know what that's like. You know, that's been me in the past. You know, and I've been a Christian, but there have been some things that I just would not bow to God and say, I am going to do this my way. And God has put me through the ringer to soften me. All of this comes down to, do we have a heart that is willing to listen? An ear that is willing to hear? You all didn't know me back in my very, very stubborn days. I'm still fairly stubborn, but when I used to be very stubborn and... God had to put me through the ringer. So, and the sad thing about this is when God has to put the husband and father through the ringer, the family suffers. And I don't want the church to suffer, so I'm learning to have a softer heart than I've ever had in my life. Because I don't want others to suffer because I am being stubborn. Jerusalem's heart was not, stub was not pliable and soft. What's going to happen to them? They're going into captivity very shortly after, the, after this message. And God says, you are going into captivity. You will bow to your, to your new masters. You will be under new, new masters, and it won't be me. You didn't want to bow to me. You're going to bow to your, your new masters, and they're going to use whips and chains and, and to make you bow. And God will make his point. One way or the other, God is going to make his point. And if we want to be stubborn... I don't want to say God is stubborn, but he is more determined than we are. If you want to be stubborn, God will out-determine out, uh, you and, and break you.
You know, he's done that to me on more than one occasion where he has broken me of my stubbornness. This is what he's telling you. You are stiff-necked you, that they might not hear and neither received instruction. And here's Jeremiah standing in the gates telling them, you know, keep the Sabbath, don't, don't break the Sabbath. This is one rule. It's amazing to me how many people you talk to when you witness to them and go, well, I think I'm a good, peop- a good person. God, you know, God's going to take me you know, because I'm so good. Well, how many, how many of God's laws have you broken? Well, I, you know, maybe one or two. They go down the Ten Commandments. They've broken every one of the Ten Commandments, you know, especially when you take it to Jesus' statement and say, have you even thought about killing somebody or you thought about committing adultery, you're guilty. Every single person has broken every single commandment. You know, so there's at least ten, and we've broken every one of them multiple times. You know, and then you go, are you good before God? I've done that with people, and I've had a couple of people go, yeah, I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm more good than bad, so I'll be okay. I go, no, no, God's standard is perfection. Jeremiah has only given them one. He says, keep the Sabbath, and they're not going to keep it. You know, because they've got hard hearts. What are they looking at? Well, if we take the Sabbath off and we're not carrying our stuff into the market, we're going to lose our profits for a day. Why do the businesses stay open in our day and age? Because they're afraid of losing one day's of, of income. I love it when people honor God and close on Sundays. Because they usually, out in six days, outperform the other competitors that are open seven days a week. Because God looks at them and says, you're going to take me at my word? I'm going to honor you. Chick-fil-A is one of the most famous ones out there. Truett Cathy kept, keeps all of his stores closed on Sundays. And if you're familiar with it, most of his stores in the early days were in malls. And the malls would say, well, you've got to be open on Sunday. He goes, I can't be on, open on Sunday. He goes, I'll tell you what. I'll open on six days, and if I don't outperform the other stores, I'll open on the seventh day. He has never had to open on the seventh day. He no longer, they want him now. They don't even make him try to jump through their hoops. They want those stores in their, in their malls and stuff. The art store that stays open, or doesn't stay open. Hobby Lobby doesn't, no. doesn't open on Sundays. There's many Christian businessmen who are saying, I'm going to honor God, and they're watching God be blessing them for honoring them, honoring his word. Now, is it a law that they have to? No, but they're going, God said to rest, we're going to rest. And I think it's important that we obey God. Same thing with tithing. God says if you tithe, he will pour out blessings. I've been tithing for a long time. Do I have, am I overflowing with money? No, but you know what? I've got a house, I've got cars, I've got a bunch of, bunch of stuff, and I still give God much more than the tithe because he said give the tithe. And my tithe comes right off the first. I get, my, I get paid and immediately write my check. It's the first check I write when I pay the bills is for the tithe. And I have one tithe that's a big tithe because I've got three checks on it, and I've got one tithe that's very small because it's only this check uh, for this. this. But I, I write my tithe first thing on, on my checks, and God is blessed. Now, like I said, I'm not a millionaire by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm also not. I have never had a time where my utilities have been cut off or I've been without a home uh, and insurance and all the other stuff. Why? Because I've honored God with the tithe. All right? So it's very important. Are we honoring God or are we fighting him at every, every spot? 
and you know our blessings come. You know, it's a great blessing not to not to worry about my bills. You know, sometimes they get tight because I've done some stupid things and, and getting too much debt. But God, still, I give Him my tithe, and I can tell you, sometimes I look at that tithe and go, God, you know, I could pay another bill with it, with half this money because I'm I'm much more high, much higher than a tithe. And that I'm going, no, nope, I'm going to give Him what I told Him I'm going to give Him, and see His blessing, and the bills get paid. Every month the bills get paid. And so the challenge for us, are we going to honor God? Do what he says. Verse 24, And it shall come to pass, if you diligently hearken unto me, says the Lord, to bring in no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work therein, then shall there enter into the gates of the city of this city kings and princes sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots on horses, and they and their princes and the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places about Jerusalem and from the land of Benjamin and from the plain and from the mountains and from the south bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices and meat offerings and incense and bringing sacrifices of praise into the house of the Lord. So here's the benefits, all right? God says, if you, if, it shall come to pass that if you diligently hearken to me, strongly, diligently, with all of your heart, you listen and obey, and you hearken to him, and it says you bring no burden through the gates on the Sabbath, but hollow that day, he goes in verse 25, then. This is going to be the result. There shall enter into the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding chariots and horses. All right, so up to this point, the kings are, have all been David. And they're saying, and God has told them that Jerusalem is going to fall because of your sin. What did that mean? No king sitting on the throne. Now, at various points, and I'm not sure where exactly we are in this point, because Jeremiah does not go chronologically. He bounces all over the place. I don't know if he's sitting in the time when they're under the thumb of Babylon yet, or if they're getting to it. But there's coming going to be a time not far off, even if he's sitting at the good kings, that there will be no king in the city of Jerusalem. All right? When Israel went into captivity to the Babylonian Empire, there has never been a king of Israel sitting on the throne. Now in Jesus' day, Herod was king. Who was he? He was appointed by the Roman government to be king. He was not a Jewish king. He was not of the line of David. So the last king of Israel is when they went into captivity in the Babylon. Jesus is, will be the last king of Israel, but he won't sit there until the millennial kingdom. All right? He entered into Jerusalem riding on the donkey, and they said, Hosanna, you know, great is the king coming in, and all the stuff that they said. He rode in and saying, I am the Messiah. And they crucified him for that statement. Or many others, but that statement primarily, you know, we're not going to put up with this. We're not, you know, we, you're, you're not, you know, we're not going to see this. And he is waiting. He has been waiting for 2,000 years 
and there will be the, the tribulation period yet to come, and then for the millennial kingdom, he will reign in Jerusalem over the whole world. And then at the end of the millennial kingdom, when Satan is let go to cause havoc again for a short period of time, everything will be destroyed. The heavens and earth will be destroyed, and a new heaven and new earth will come in, and he will reign in that one forever with the new Jerusalem. And we don't understand how that is, what that means, because he still talks about gates and commerce and everything. It's going to be very interesting to see what God says about the new heaven and new earth. That there's some kind of businesses going on, some kind of trade going on. Uh, God created us to work, and I believe in, the, in, in heaven we will work. Now, again, when God created man to work, and I've said this many times, Adam and Eve were created to be the gardeners in a perfect garden. In a garden that even I could grow something, I'm sure. Seems how nothing died, because I can't grow anything. Uh, and I've told you all the story, you know, my, my roommate in college went away for a weekend and I managed to kill his plants, watering them one time. I have no clue how I killed all of his plants, but he asked me to take care of them. He said, water them on Saturday. I watered them on Saturday and they were dead by Sunday night. Uh, I, you do not want me taking care of your garden. <laughs> All right. So even, but in the Garden of Eden, even I could grow things. <laughs> so what will heaven be like? God will give us jobs. But they will, there will be jobs that we're so good at, and they're so much fun that we're not even going to think about them as being jobs. Now I love teaching. I do not think about teaching like being a job. I just enjoy doing it. It's so much fun. I could do it seven days a week. I'd have to be, I'd have to be careful to make sure I took a day off, because I enjoy it so much. You know, and what do you like doing? Each person has something they like doing. I've seen people who love to be mechanics. I have no idea why they like being mechanics, but I've seen people who love being mechanics. Uh, I'm glad they exist because I, as long as I find a good one, I've got somebody to take care of my car because I hate it. I can do it, but I hate being a mechanic. You know, and you don't want me putting two, nailing two boards together because you know, they're not going to stick together very long. I am not the one for, that you want doing that kind of stuff. So all of these things that come in, he goes, you'll have the kings riding their chariots and their horses, princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. Now this is kind of an interesting statement because he's already prophesied that that city is going to be conquered many times already. But he's saying, if you repent, if you do what God says, you're going to, the city will get into a prosperous position forever. You know, one of the things that saddens me about America is for more than almost two full centuries, America sent out more missionaries and, and sent out the gospel and preached the gospel to the world. Do you realize that America now get, gets more missionaries than we send out from around the world? We are a place that missionaries come to we have a church in some places on every single corner. You go down, you go again, go to the south. You go to the, a town or a city in the south, and there's a church on every single corner, it seems like. And sometimes there's churches on every corner. And we are having missionaries come to America to try to evangelize our country because of how far we've fallen from God. 
I can picture there weren't, you know, there weren't anybody else for the Jews to come to, but I could picture people in, in this day of your, that Jeremiah is preaching, missionaries coming from all around to, to preach to Jerusalem because it is so fallen from God. And we're watching our country suffer because of its falling away from God and not honoring God. Jerusalem is in that same place. Everything they're doing, people doing what's right in their own eyes, worshiping other gods, not listening to God, and God says, if you will just turn, just turn. Do, do even this one thing, honor the Sabbath day, and I will turn my wrath from you. And they would not listen. They would not get rid of even one day of work, even though God said, honor my day. And how hard are our hearts? When God tells us to do something, do we harden our heart and need God to really hammer on us for a while, or we soft and say, yes, God. Last time I remember God speaking to me, I'll go, okay, all right, God, how much? <laughs> how much, you know, just tell me, what, tell me what you want me to do. I didn't argue with him at all. I don't do that all the time. <laughs> that was a rarity. But the question is, are we willing to just say, God, yes. I want to do things your way. You said to do this, I want to change. Unfortunately, most of us are human beings, all of us. <laughs> most human beings just want to argue and say, no, God, I'm not, I don't want to do it your way. Jerusalem did not want to do it God's way. And God says, here's your blessing. I will give you a great blessing. I will honor you. I will make this happen. He says in, in verse 26, And then shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem and from the land of Benjamin and from the plain and from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, meat offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise into the house of the Lord. Now, the places he's given, you've got to remember, the northern kingdom has gone into captivity already. They've been conquered by Assyria, and that has now been, Assyria has been conquered by Babylon at this time. So he's listing Jerusalem, Judah, and Benjamin. That's the entirety of the southern kingdom. He says, all the... All these lands that belong to God will come to offer sacrifices. Now, we're told in the Millennial Kingdom that everybody from around the world will be going to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, to give burnt offerings, to give praise to God, to honor God, to lift him up. What a period of time that will be. Everybody coming to worship God directly. Now, some of them are going to be made to worship him. Some want to worship him. But remember, the Jewish people, three times a year, every male was to go to the temple and worship. All right? Three times a year on, on three holidays, they were to go and worship. This was not happening in Jeremiah's day. <laughs> yeah. There were a handful of people that went to worship. I mean, God has always had a remnant of people. Even today, he has a remnant of people. Even in the tribulation period, he's got a remnant of people that will be worshiping and, and serving him. It'll start with 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and they will lead others to Christ during that period of time, but there will be a remnant. Now, 144,000 is not a very big number when, when, in, when looked at to the billions of people, even with millions of us taken away in the rapture, there will still be billions of people on this world. So 144,000 is not a very big number 
But that is what it is. God's always had a remnant. Never, never failed. Uh, Elijah told God, you know, hey, I'm the, I'm the only one that's worshiping you. And God says, I've got those who haven't bent their knee. You go do what I told you to do. Over and over again, there has been a remnant. Uh, when the persecutions would come, there would still be a rem- remnant. During the Dark Ages, there was a remnant that actually believed in God and his word. In our day, it's getting less and less, but there is a remnant. It's getting smaller with each passing generation, but there is going to always be a remnant that follow God. And this is what was happening in their day. There was a small remnant. We're supposed to be going out sharing the gospel message to people. Unfortunately, I'm not sure that we're doing as good a job as we need to be in this day and age because there's a lot of, a lot of Christians who have never led anybody to the Lord. You know, now, I understand most of the time we're just planting seeds or watering, but every once in a while, you, you know, are you actually talking to people? Are you pl- at least planting seeds? And I've met many Christians who, they don't do that. They're afraid. They're afraid to tell people about Jesus. But I'm going to tell you, it's so much fun because there are so many people that want to hear about Jesus. They're looking for something they can believe in. And if we can present Jesus in a way that says, here is the one that will take your eternity and give and fulfill you. Now, we need to be careful in that. You know, we're not telling them that Jesus is going to answer all your problems and nope, nothing is ever going to go wrong with your life again. Because if you tell them that, they're not going to, the first problem that hits them, they're going to go, oh, that's, I was lied to. And they were. And unfortunately, the American gospel is that kind of, turn to Jesus and everything will be hunky-dory. I don't know where they get that message in the Bible because my experience, I'm on the wrong side of the war on this world. Satan and the world do not like Christians. And it's even worse because we were on Satan's side going with the world and then all of a sudden we switch sides. How do you think an army would like, you know, a general would like that? You switch sides in the middle of a battle. They're not going to like you very well. Satan does not like us, especially if we're going to share the gospel. Now, if we get saved and all we do is sit on our butt all the time and don't do anything, he's going to say, well, I lost you, but okay, you're not, you're not a threat. But I've shared with everybody who wants to do something, as soon as you decide you're going to do something for God, look out. Because Satan has now got a big target put on you and say, got to stop that person because they might do something that's actually going to change the battlefield. And the more you do, the bigger that target gets to be. So... And I tell everybody not to scare them, but to warn them things will happen when you choose to obey God. And I, I, want, God to, I want God to have a great big, big target on me because he's bigger than Satan. I love it that he's bigger. And be ready to challenge and say, I am going to reach out. Now, there's some strange things that have happened to me ever since we started getting on the internet and, and broadcasting around the world. There's strange things that happen around my life. I'm going, okay, God, you know, you're still in charge. And that has to be our attitude. When things seem to be bad for us, you know, and we look at it and say, well, I haven't been overtly sinning. All right, God, you're, you're trying to teach me a lesson. I want to be obedient. Satan is trying to stop me. Think of David's life. David said he was not going to kill Saul. He had two opportunities where he could have killed Saul and said, taken over the kingdom with no problem. Who do you think put those opportunities in front of him? Satan was putting that opportunity and saying, here, are you, going, are you going to take the kingdom or not? 
and he stayed strong in what God had taught him. Are we willing to stay strong in what we know to be true? It's been said, and I love this statement, don't forget in the dark what you learned in the light. Hold on to what you know to be true, even when all the lights are out around you and it doesn't seem like anything, any of it's true. Hold fast to what is true. And too many Christians do. They go, well, this doesn't match up with what I thought God was saying, so I'm just going to throw away the whole thing. This is where Romans 8.28 is, is my, my linchpin and everything. When, everything. when the lights go out around me, I'm going, God, you've promised that all things work together for good. I am just going to hold on to this verse for everything I have because you're still in control. Even though I can't see you, even though I can't see how it's going to happen, you are in control and I hold. And you know, you'll pick your own verse. You know, Each person will pick their own verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. That's a great verse. I don't know lots of people. That's their verse. God don't understand, but you said to trust in you. So I'm going to trust in you. You know, I, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus concerning you. You pick your verse on what it is. The word of God is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. What verse is going to be yours? You pick it. I've got other verses. Romans 8.28 is my big one. That is the one that holds me in the midst of the darkest times. But I have all kinds of verses that say, this is going to help me. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Very powerful verse. I am dead to myself, and if I'm not dead to myself, God's going to make me dead to myself. So that I will be dead to myself, and he lives through me and out of me. So we go through all of these processes, and here is Jeremiah saying, if you will just honor God, these things will happen. People will come from all around to bringing burnt offerings, sacrifices, meat offerings, incense, bringing the sacrifices of praise. Have you thought about that word, sacrifices of praise? How many times have you praised God when you really don't feel like praising God? What does it do when you praise God when you're not feeling like praising God? It really does change your attitude. It does mine anyway. God, I really don't feel like singing. I really don't feel like praising. And I praise him anyway. Before long, I'm going, wow, okay, let's, let's go, God. I'm, I'm ready. Sometimes praising is a sacrifice. You know, when you come in on a Sunday morning and you've just had a fight with your spouse and you have a flat tire on your way in, you ran into, a, ran into a cow on the street or whatever it might be, are you ready to praise God and say, God, I'm still going to praise you. And watch what he does. Bring him in. You know, when bad things are happening, what is our attitude? Do we dwell on the bad that's happening or we start looking for God? How is this going to work out together for good? What good is coming out of this? And remember, and we said this so many times, the, the verse does not say all things work together for my good. It says it works out for good. So if I'm looking for good in the situation, that is what God says is going to happen. And he may not show us what that good is until we get to heaven. But there's always something that's going to be good out of that. People are watching our lives. And people go, well, nobody's watching my life. If you've ever shared that you go to church, you, you share God with anybody, people are watching your life to see, are you a hypocrite or are you real? Now, 
The sad thing is, so often we make mistakes and people go, see, I knew, I knew you were a hypocrite. And that's when we said, you know what? God still forgives me and I'm going to con continue going forward. Because we're all going to fail, unfortunately. But they're also looking at what do we do when we fail? Do we wallow, wallow around in the mire and the muck and everything for a long time before we get back up? Or do we give, get back up, try to you know, go take a shower and get cleaned up <laughs> and go forward? That impresses them as well because that tells them that you don't have to be perfect to be a Christian. Because a lot of these people think, well, you Christians are all perfect. And if they don't see us bounce back from, from our falling down, it's, they're, they're going to really have a hard time with that. My dad got saved because the guy that was witnessing to him at work fell down in a big way and actually came back and apologized to him for being a bad example of Christ. And that impressed my dad. Okay, you Christians aren't necessarily perfect and God will still forgive you and you're going to still live for God and you didn't wallow around for years in, in self-pity. That impressed him. And he finally got saved shortly thereafter. So we need to understand that we are an example to people. And even in our falling, when we get back up, people are looking at it and saying, wow, I don't know that I would have gotten back up. I don't know that I would have turned back to God. And we go forward with God, and that still impresses people. And I think it might even impress them better than if we had never fallen. Because if we don't fall, they look at us and say, well, I can never do what they do. They're, they're just too good. But when we fall and we come right back, right back in repentance and follow God, that impresses them. I don't have to be perfect. And the last verse in this section here before our time runs out. But if you will not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath and not to bear the burden upon even entering into the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in the gates thereof and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. God says, if you're not going to do what I've told you, I'm going to destroy the city. And very shortly after this time, he did destroy the city. Nebuchadnezzar came in, tore down all the walls, tore down the temple. They set fire to the city, burned it to the ground, tore down all the, all the walls. The gold melted further into the cracks, so they tore down every brick of the temple so they could get all the gold out of the, out of the temple, and there was not a brick standing on itself in the temple. And that was what God said was going to happen. If you do not honor me, everything will go. And, you know, this is something for us as well. If we do not honor God, we do not represent God, eventually he will say, enough is enough and destroy, destroy our life, take, take our life completely. Now, he'll do a lot of destruction before that happens. He'll give us a lot of beatings over the head, you know, with a, uh, I'd say a two by four, but sometimes for some of us, we're stubborn enough, we need an eight by eight or a 10 by 10, you know, that God pounds us over the head with. But God will, if we still will not listen, God says, there comes a time when I'm just going to say, that's it. He's not going to allow us to drag his name through the mud over and over and over again. The Jews were not allowed to drag his name forever. Now, he was very patient with them. It took them 100, 200 years before they finally were taken into captivity. But God kept saying, you're not listening. You're going to go into captivity. 
And you know, one of the problems with taking that long was people started thinking, well, we've heard this before. How many times have you been witnessing somebody and say, Jesus is coming back? Oh, yeah, you guys have been saying that for 2,000 years. You're right, we've been saying it for 2,000 years, and we're closer today than we were 2,000 years ago. He is coming back. The signs are all over the place that he is coming back. And, you know, and, but the problem is, 2,000 years of saying that, people are going, what's wrong with you Christians? You know, what's wrong with your God that he waits 2,000 years? 2,000 years is nothing to God. You know, Peter said that a day is it to the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Why? Because God's outside of time. God doesn't care about time. He is above time. He looks down on time like, you know, we're reading these books, you know. He sees the beginning and the end on, on one page and says, uh, well, let's see, where do I want to pick in time today, today to look at? He's outside of time. He knows the beginning from the end. Nothing surprises him. Uh, and that's hard for us to understand. You know, it's hard to comprehend that God is outside of time, looking down into time. And when he gives a prophecy, he's not even given a prophecy. He's just telling us what he already knows. It's future to us. It's a prophecy to us. But God says, I already know this is happening because I'm already there. God created this world and he is already at the millennial kingdom. He's already at the new heaven and new earth because he's outside of time. You know, that's hard, hard to fathom. God is not looking at us where we are today. He's looking at what we will be because he knows what we will be and what we are in his sight, even though we're not there now. That's an amazing thought. You know, we're looking at ourselves here and saying, God, I, I've got so much room to grow. And God says, yeah, I know you do, but I'm looking at you totally different than you look at yourself. How do we look at other Christians? Are we looking at other Christians as who they are now or who they will be? We need to be careful about how we judge other Christians because every one of us is in the process of growth now. But God is saying, I know, I know, what, they're, I know what each individual will be. And we need to be careful to look at people with grace and mercy, not with judgment. And the more we learn to give grace to people, including ourselves, the better off we're going to be. If we start dealing with each other by grace, rather than by rules and laws and, and all of this, what miraculous growth we will see. Now, I've only been walking with God for, for 52 years, but you know what I have noticed over those years? Grace frees people. Grace always frees people and helps them grow. Law puts them in chains and makes them fight hard against their, their chains. And God gives us grace and the more we give others grace the more they're going to grow rather than saying well you got to do this 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 and we're not doing it either grace and watch what God does with grace and this is why I am very much a grace oriented person I don't want to bind people up by law because law kills law holds back growth that doesn't mean we just go out and do what we want because true grace moves us toward a perfection of God because we're looking at saying how can I please the one who's given me this much grace when I was growing up I had a good you know I was one of those people that had a pretty good family I always wanted to do what would please my my mother and father I did not want to well gee they're giving me all this all this freedom I'm just going to go out and do what I want and make them feel bad 
always wanted to go out and do what made them happy that I was their child. And this is what we're going to do with God. If we're really truly looking at him, what can I do to please my father who has given me this much freedom? Not how much sin can I get away with? And that's what most people say. Well, if you give grace, people are going to want to go out and sin. That has not been my experience. The more law that's put on somebody, the more they want to sin. The more they want to break out of those shackles and sin. The more grace that's put on somebody, the more they desire to serve God that is the God of grace. So we need to learn to be able to give grace. Now, as parents, I understand sometimes we have to put some rules on our kids. You know, because otherwise our kids would be spoiled, rotten brats that are doing everything wrong. But are we also learning to be able to give them grace? And one of the things I learned with my teenagers is I gave them lots of free space so that if they made a mistake, then I would discipline them and correct them, but be still loving them and, and teaching them. And I hoped that my years of teaching them would lead them into the right direction. And for the most part, they were good kids. Occasionally, they had to have little, little persuasion, but for the most part, they were pretty good kids. And so grace. God does the same thing with us. He gives us grace. He gives us liberty. Every once in a while, he'll take us out to the woodshed because we've gone too far down a line. That, on the, but he still loves us and gives us grace. And here's what he's telling the people. If you will just be obedient, you're going to have mercy and grace. Disobedience will bring great judgment. Lord, we ask you to be with us. Help us learn to accept your grace toward us. Help us learn to be able to give grace to other people that you will be lifted up in all that we're doing and help break our stubborn streaks that we all have. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church P.O. Box 65 Chloride, Arizona 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.